Hello and welcome to the Moving Curve. I'm Rukmini, a data journalist based in Chennai. Two nights a week on this mini cast, I consider one question around the novel coronavirus epidemic in India. Tonight I'm considering this one. What does a modeler think looking back at the early days of the pandemic? It's day 302 of the novel coronavirus epidemic in India and we are reporting 9,884,716 cases with 143,393 deaths. On March 23rd this year when India had 497 confirmed cases only I wrote an article for the print looking at what some models were showing for the possible immediate future of the virus in India. This sort of modeling had already begun in the US and the UK and there had been some discussions in the Indian media but not based on any published research. First I did a crude calculation of what exponential growth would mean for the immediate few weeks and months. Then I shared the results of modeling done by a team of biostatisticians at the University of Michigan in the US. That model presented the numbers we could expect with and without interventions. Without interventions like lockdowns, India could expect close to a million cases by May 15th, the model showed. As it happened, India went into lockdown 2 days later, but I got a lot of pushback on social media for the piece then. In hindsight, I realized one thing very clearly. I did a poor job of conveying probability. that these numbers were projections in the absence of any intervention that they were the upper bounds of projections and of explaining what exactly went into deriving these estimates perhaps i simply did not understand it well enough to explain it well at the time the umich team has since put out multiple revised projections and dozens of pieces of research around covid including in india heading the team is a remarkable woman dr bhramar mukherjee She is professor and chair of the Department of Biostatistics and a professor of epidemiology at the University of Michigan. Her research focuses on the development and application of statistical methods in epidemiology. She has authored over 250 articles and is the recipient of multiple grants and awards. She is also a first generation immigrant to the US and following her on Twitter these last few months has been in part a glimpse into the anxieties of an Indian American living away from elderly parents in India. When we spoke she was in Kolkata having finally been able to return to see her parents. Usually I come about 3 times a year and uh, so this year I left in January but I think this year has been long for longer than usual for all of us. Yeah, exactly. and you know, my parents because they are stuck at home so i think me being here gives them a lot of joy and like you know motivation and purpose right. just like cooking for me i think gives uh, my mother a lot of purpose of course this is not the time to actually travel right we all know that but i felt like i was at the end of my tether and i had to i dove right in with my questions about modeling and hindsight so i wanted to ask about modeling um my first introduction to your work came through the first few uh, the first medium article that uh, you and your team wrote after the uh, first attempt at modeling and then i wrote about uh, that for the print at the time um and when i go back and look at what i wrote and even think about what i knew and what i thought at the time i feel like i you know i didn't do a very good job of conveying the um Uh, assumptions and the inherent uh, uncertainty and probability that exists in modeling 
So I wanted to ask you if for modeling in particular, you feel that um, the, the science communication has been up to the mark or do you feel science communication was able to meet um, the requirements of modeling? So that's a great question. I think it goes both ways, whether the modelers were uh, reciprocative and communicating in the right language so that the science communication could pick up the main messages and the other way, like what did they pick up? Because it's always selective choices that get out in the media, not the entire paper. Uh, so I think that in our first models, we realized quickly that not many people were providing confidence or credible intervals. And we also realized that journalists will do not fully comprehend that what does it mean that like, you know, 60,000 cases expected, but the confidence interval is 900,000. So, and we got a lot, of, a lot of criticism by saying that this is not an information because the confidence interval is too wide. What are you telling us? Yeah. Because it, anybody can say that we are going to have 50,000 to uh, 1 million and that's not information. So there's a lot of misconception about what uncertainty means. And there's a natural tendency to cherry pick the upper confidence interval for the media, for some media to scare people, and the lower confidence interval for the policymakers so that there is a false sense of assurance. So I think it's a very difficult ground to tread if you don't understand uncertainty. So gradually I felt that the uncertainty quantification, and also we all basically know these numbers are incorrect, right? This is just the cursor because we are seeing the tip of the iceberg, there are so many imperfections and anomalies in data collection. So we basically are getting a relative ranking of the different interventions. And I think that's the first thing that you need to communicate that it's not really, we almost surely know it's on an absolute scale, it's wrong, but it still gives you a relative calibration of the different interventions or from one time period to another. The projected case counts, we know that that which received the most attention that India is going to have this many cases, we know it's function of so many things. How much are you testing? How are people reporting? And what states are changing in terms of their policies? So it's a, a, a really a culmination of multitude of factors. So I think that it's not just the biological process or property of the virus, it's property of the public, it's property of the public health system, all together convoluted and summarized into that case count, which is very hard to disentangle each piece. So I think that if I wrote that paper right now, I will emphasize on that point. I think I harped on the uncertainty bound point, but I did not harp on how meaningless the case counts are. Right. I feel like I would... Um... I too would want to integrate that, uh, you know, in hindsight, I I would, I, I think I would have wanted to do maybe a two-part article, a first-part article, just explaining what models say and don't say, and then what the model is actually projecting, because without that preamble, um, I'm not sure yeah. that, you know, yeah, I mean, it's something I would do differently in hindsight. I asked Dr. Mukherjee about whether she felt that their model could explain the decline in cases since mid-September in India. Because one of the things I've been struggling to understand is what changed that caused this decline? One thing I'd have to say that none of these models were good at uh, predicting long term. And I think that because the reality on the ground is changing so much that I did not trust any model beyond the six-week prediction. And, 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 and it's huge uncertainty. 
And we saw that, you know, Delhi is a prime example. Mm -hmm. In Delhi, I remember in June, everybody was coming up with these really remarkable dire projections. Mm -hmm. And then they increased testing and we saw the curve turning corner. And so, and then it went up again because as soon as you take your feet off the brake, then the virus surges. We know that. So it's so much a stochastic um, amalgamation of what people are doing on the ground. I yeah. think unless you do daily updating, and so that's what a couple of things are learning lessons for modelers here, that unlike any kind of academic exercise where you put forward a model and then you wait for six months for your revision to come back and then you revise your model, this is yeah. completely useless here. Yeah. So you have to build a system so that your projections are updated daily. And that's, I think, one of the uh, good things about the work by our team is that we saw that coming. So we built our engine, I think, in June and July so that it can keep on running. Right. But I never was comfortable in putting out the project predictions more than like six months, what is going to happen in February of 2021, which many people were doing, just right. because in, even in our own model, I don't have the trust. Yes. So coming back to the peak question, I think the models have a hard time getting these behavior things into the model. And I think that by the time they're able to capture the peak, you can already see this in the raw case counts, that it is, it is basically coming down. Right. And then the second peak, when is it going to happen? Even in the United States, I'd say that we have to make a distinction between waves and peaks. Okay. And the waves I sort of distinguish as biological properties of the virus, right? Because you saturate one domain, people right. in big metros get infected 30 to 40. So the waves come with fall, the weather, people gathering in indoors, so the virus is transmitting more. And the peaks are sort of more like a human behavior. You were really following the guidelines and now you just relaxed and then we saw these two peaks in the first wave uh, in the United States, and one was the coastal regions, and the other one was the inner states. Mm -hmm. And similarly, in India, because India is such a heterogeneous system, all the different modulations we saw were because of the perturbation in the statewide level. Yeah. And unless every state sort of came down to a level of containment, you could not really see that turning of the curve. So as soon as Maharashtra and Delhi uh, came down and you could see, so India's curve was basically very close to Maharashtra's curve right. and for a long, long time. And then you can see, like, you know, if you have see different places and the sample sizes, you just, it's an aggregated learning, right? With right. everything, the curve is a weighted curve of the different states, weighted by how many cases, their population size. So as a result, it is actually, we realized very quickly and our nation versus state paper is coming out this week. This is a great time to uh, answer this question that it is, it is really futile to talk about the national peak right. Uh, right. when, you know, the states are so different. You right. really have to build the model ground up. Right. And several things, even in a microcosm of a state, I think several things going to the turning of the curve in the corner in terms of we do not know in many places what is the true seroprevalence, right? That's a key thing that how many people are actually infected that could determine the turning of the curve. How much room do you have to grow, right? So um, so I think that the rural areas, I don't think we have a good grasp of 
what the rate of infection is. And if the virus gets there, is it going to spread like wildfire or is it going to be much more contained? I feel the big metros are exhausted right now from the seroprevalence data that I have seen, 30 to 40 percent. And probably that's one reason, even with resumption of normal life, we have not seen that kind of escalation in the last one month. Even like in, 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 you know, in West Bengal, I was so worried about the Durga Puja and all of the festivities and Diwali and all other parts of India. But touch it, we did not see such a huge, like, you know, explosion that many of us were afraid of. For a modeler, I also wondered how it works to estimate numbers going forward when it's still so unclear why cases have surged in some places and not others, and what this means for messaging. Given this unevenness in apparent spread so far, for example, in October, when I speak to, spoke to administration officials in Bihar, their concern was because there had been a lot of crowding around um, election campaigning. They, they feared a surge then. There had been flood relief efforts. Uh, they feared a surge from that. And then there was their Chhat Puja, their big festival, where there was very low mask compliance was visible in photos. Um, there has been no surge. We've had two, three weeks since all of those. So I'm, I'm wondering if that makes the job of... Um, messaging harder for people in administrations to you know ask people to be very um, diligent about uh, masking for example when they've seen these huge election rallies not lead to surges I'm, I'm wondering if 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 that makes the job harder yeah I think this is a very interesting tale of two disciplines in terms of you know what the one, it's very polarized, right? What the data modelers and the public health officials are seeing, and then how do you make people comply with that? And how do you get buy-in from yeah. people, from common people? And so the, you have to uh, strike a balance between denial and alarmism, right? Because you cannot really always stay in home and you are you cannot sh- sh- like really hide under the shield of lockdowns and protection still perpetuity that's not going to happen for India and so I uh, so I feel that that this is a tough balancing act. Finally I asked Dr. Mukherjee about her thoughts having seen the epidemic up close in the US and India about the two countries handlings of their epidemics. I have witnessed the healthcare infrastructure firsthand in the US and then coming to India. The first thing I'm going to say is that getting a test in Michigan was much harder than getting tested in India. Mm-hmm. And since I have come here, you know, the test prices have gone down exponentially. Right. So when I got here first, my first test was 2,200 rupees. The right. second test was 1,500 rupees. And the third test was 950 rupees. Right. So I can see this progress in real time in mm-hmm. one month. Sometimes we forget to give credit to leadership and infrastructure and resource development in developing countries that are deserved if actually a developed country had done the same thing. So I think we have to give where credit is due that this public-private partnership in terms of testing and in terms of also healthcare has really escalated in India. So we have to give credit for that. The second thing which I think is quite important here, which I see, is this consistent messaging that this is serious. Mm -hmm. And I think the national lockdown sent that message. And I see that daily people are really afraid that if they don't wear masks 
And if they don't practice the hand hygiene, even people who are coming to my house are asking me for sanitizer, right? They know that if they don't follow these guidelines, then their livelihoods are going to be at stake again. So this consistent messaging is promoting some health behaviors. And I think that even in a low resource setting, the things that we have seen that the government working closely with the community leaders, religious leaders, to send messaging. And then even at a grassroots level, people's uh, perception that something serious is going on, that we need to be alerted. Of course, there is a fragment of the population who are cavalier about it. But then in general, I feel that there is a high level of a sense of grimness here. And, 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 and I think that that has really helped India. Um, big metros, adherence to masks, and the common people, the common people understanding that there is something serious going on. And the testing increase, I think, is also accessibility to testing. Uh, when I was in Delhi, I was hearing like people going around saying that if you don't wear your mask, then your shop will be closed down or you'll have a fine. Or here in Calcutta, what I'm seeing is that there is a testing camp in the places where people are, you know, in poor neighborhood that please come and get tested for free. Right. I ask my household help every day. They say that the community health workers come and knock on their door and check, check temperature. Is anybody having cough and uh, fever? Right. So people are trying. We don't have the same resources as, as the U.S., but we see here that leadership and attitude, how much of a difference it can be. And I, what has happened in the United States with all the science, all the resources, all the public health infrastructure, and in terms of global like you know, index, they were at the top in terms of pandemic preparedness. But in reality, I think India has done better than the United States. I thank Dr. Mukherjee for joining me. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Anand Krishnamurti. On the next episode, a new question.